Hi everyone, welcome to the OT Miri channel. My name is Miri, I'm a licensed occupational therapist, and in this channel I provide content overview, study tips, as well as test-taking strategies for the National Board Certification for Occupational Therapy exam, also known as the NDCOT exam. Now for those of you who don't know me and my story, G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Just got done with an amazing chat with an amazing human. You may know her as O.T. Miri. Uh, we delved into her platform, her goals for her platform, uh, recent controversy uh, with regards to the platform, which many people will know about already. Uh, where she wants to take it, what she wants to do with it, tips and advice for students, new grads, and content creators. Uh, an amazing chat. I'm so grateful that she, she came on the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. I've been looking through all of your website and your Facebook page and all that sort of stuff. You've got so many groups. Do I, I, I feel, I do, you know, I have been so inactive in all of them. I was um, quite active when I first started and um, I have a Facebook group and Instagram. I only have one group on Facebook, but I've taken a really long break and it's just been different after I've took that break since the NBCOT closure. It just has been a little bit more difficult for me to come back. Um, And I'm still slowly coming back. And I haven't been on Instagram. I just don't go on that platform very much. I've had it for a couple of years, but you can see that I have, you know, maybe a hundred posts. Yep. Yep. Collectively. (laughs) So I'm not very, I'm not actually a very um, public person, which is interesting because I have a YouTube channel, but you know, my Facebook, you know, we just... Facebook friends, I, I don't like to post a lot. I lived a very private life and it's really, um, you know, I didn't think that the YouTube channel would have a lot of views. I did it for the few people who might be struggling the way that I had. And I had, and OT is such a small field that I had no idea that people would, you know, start watching it to the extent that they did. And then before I was able to like Stop the momentum. It actually got a lot bigger than I had ever imagined, which I don't complain about. But I think there, I I would be lying to say that it, you know, it doesn't. That this level of vulnerability and exposure at times can make me feel very uncomfortable because I've left, I've led a very private, very private life, and I yeah. still am. Yeah, no so. doubt. Because um, so I. Why did you start it? Well, how how did OT, the the YouTube? I'm assuming the YouTube channel started first. I'm assuming that was the the catalyst. But how? Why? Why did you start the OT Mary YouTube cha- YouTube channel? Well, um, I I started the OT Mary YouTube channel at the end of 2017 after I found out that I did not pass the exam, the certification exam. And um, I wasn't necessarily a stellar student um, when I was going to OT program, but I did not think that I wouldn't pass because, you know, it's just, I felt like I, I didn't actually know what the passing rate was, but going into it, 
as difficult as it was, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll probably pass and I'll get a job. And I didn't think much of it. But when I received that failed notice, um, it, it was just so devastating. And it's just an exam. But, you know, this is a high stakes exam. A lot is riding on it. And, um, you know, social media makes it a lot worse because then you see everyone posting their score. Congratulations. And, you know, while there was a part of me that was really happy for that, I couldn't help but compare myself to everyone who had passed and were now getting a job offer. And um, I'm not sure if you're familiar or if you read this on my website, but I found out that I didn't pass on the day of my OTD commencement, just a couple hours oh, before. No. And so I opened my email and I went on uh, my NBCOT account and that's when I found out. And so, you know, a lot of my friends and family were here from out of town to celebrate with me. And yep. I remember sitting through the entire ceremony thinking, oh my gosh, this is not Dr. Lee. Dr. Lee failed and <laughs> I still don't have my you know certification and I don't know when I'll be able to pass it. And, um, you know, I had resources, but I, at the time, I didn't feel like I had, I could afford, I mean, graduating from USC with exorbitant student loan, I had this mounting debt that I now know I have to pay off. And, um, you know, the idea of paying for the exam again and paying for resources, that's just not, I didn't have that kind of time or resources. Mm. So there was a lot of stress, panic, anxiety, and this idea that I just failed myself and everybody else. And I thought, you know, I don't want anyone to feel this kind of anxiety and depression as I had felt. And, um, I started, I decided my, I told myself that if I pass and when I pass, I'm going to share everything I learned along the way. And so it wasn't a big plan. It wasn't a, a single moment of epiphany, or it wasn't this like idea that I had all planned out. It was simply just, I'm going to make a video starting with the most difficult concept, <laughs> the things that I had most trouble with, not something that you can just sort of memorize or, uh, grasp really easily by looking at the book, but things like that's really hard to remember. So how can we simplify it and, you know, make retention easier or really complex uh, topics like hands and upper extremities. Those are really the ones that I started with because that's the one that I had trouble with. And, um, and I, and then I felt really passionate about, you know, equaling the playing field for those people who felt that they didn't have as many resources as I had. Um, because I couldn't afford, you know, tutors and, you know, mm. all of these resources. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to make sure that this is readily accessible and um, free so that anyone can access it regardless of their ability to pay. And that's how it started. And what started as one, two, three videos now became, you know, like a compilation of all these topics and strategies and tips and most importantly a community of people yeah. who really come together to encourage and empower um, each other through their journey so that was a really long answer no, huh no, but that's yeah great. that's sort of how i started the otv channel that's great and i mean like this is all new for me because we don't have the certification exam i don't think anyone has it except for you guys so uh america's unique in that way on terms of like for us, once you finish your degree, as long as you pass, then you apply and you get registered. You don't have to sit another exam to be 
registered after you've you know already done however many years and spent how much money on a course so it's it's a it's a unique system and i'm not 100 percent sure why or how it works that way yet from an outsider's point of view what sort of resources were available before you started the youtube like you spoke about uh resources being quite expensive and stuff like what sort of stuff was there there is the very popular resource from AOTA. Um, it comes with a PDF and an online digital subscription for a year that gives you a bank of questions. I think it was 1,200 at the time that I subscribed, and it might still be around that number or more. And it allows you to go through all of the questions, um, you know, time, untimed, and practice mode, and you know, simulating test exam. And so it's a really great resource. Um, and they have a different price point for whether you're an AOTA member or not, but a couple hundred dollars. There's also Therapy Ed, which um, a lot of students use. Um, and those Therapy Ed has a lot of really uh, complex questions. And it doesn't, this, this resource doesn't necessarily inspire neutrality in the sense that some people find it really difficult. Some people really like it. Some people say that it's really dense. My personal opinion and um, experience with it was that I felt that it was so difficult that it really helped me to think critically and hone my clinical reasoning skills. So there was a therapy ad. Um, in terms of what was available, oh, and then there's the, a lot of people refer to this book as the purple book. And um, I've seen, I've seen it's people actually not purple that. for the OTR <laughs> exam. And I don't know why this particular book got the name the purple book. I think it's for the, um, the certified occupational therapy assistant uh, examination comes in the purple package. But it's actually the occupational therapy examination review guide by Karen and Johnson. And uh, this also comes with 800 questions. Uh, not and It doesn't give you any review uh, like therapy ed or AOTA, but it gives you a bank of questions and you can then practice. Um, in terms of what was available online, um, I know that there was, there's a girl named Mia Cowdell, and she's such a sweet, sweet lady. I was able to connect with her, and she's on YouTube. She actually started maybe a year or two before I did, covering a wide range of topics as she was also going through the certification exam. Um, and she is a certified occupational therapy assistant. I don't think that she's posted a lot um, in the last year or so, but she was the first. And I remember when I first started the channel, I posted about her because I said, it's really difficult to be the first in any arena, but mm. she was the first um, CODA to actually take this on. And she has a very similar story. She, I, I'm not actually sure if she didn't pass or if she passed the first time, but she did it because she wanted to share her strategies. So there was her. And I know that there's also an app OT questions app. So there are actually a lot of resources, yep. but um, the only one that I was able to find for, for free was Nia and she was on YouTube. Okay. So it just, yeah, it seems, I don't know. Well, I'm sure there is a purpose behind it. It just seems like a very, uh, it seems like a money grab to me. I don't, I don't understand the system. I don't like you. You finish your degree. Your degree costs. I don't know what degrees cost over there, but I'm assuming it's a lot, like over here. But then you've got to pay for resources to study, and you've got to pay to sit the exam, don't you? 
Yeah. And that's all before you can even start to work and earn some money back. Right. Wow. So what was your very first video? You said you started with what was the hardest. What was your very first video about? Do you remember? I do. Um, I actually did two simultaneously. It was the Allen Cognitive Levels and the Rancho Los Amigos Scale. And so those two uh, were not necessarily complex topics, but ones that were really difficult for people to mem- for me to memorize. And I know that a lot of people had mentioned um, while taking the test that it was just really difficult to absorb all that information. So um, that's the first uh, those are the first two that I worked uh, together. Um, and I think the one that I published first probably would be the Rancho Los Amigos. Three years ago. I'll just see it's It's up on your, your YouTube channel now. I can see it. Yes. Three years ago. <laughs> I can't believe it's been three years. It's hard to believe. How time flies. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So... I forgot what I was going to say now. That happens a lot, by the way. It'll happen many times. Um, so you were saying before, like, you you were very – you still are, like, a very private person. You still find it strange that you're sort of out there so much. And how did you sort of bring yourself to, I guess, initially jump that gap and, like, post your first video and go, like, no, okay, this is important. I'm going to put this out. How did you get over that sort of, I don't know, probably a fear, I guess. How did you, how did you do that? Well, uh, the fear, to be honest, wasn't as great back then as I have now. Okay. <laughs> the fear actually grew time. You know, people say ignorance is bliss. I think when I started, uh, not only was I a private person, but I wasn't a mate. I, I wasn't a consumer of a lot of media or social media. So I was for the most part, not ever on YouTube until I married my husband. I hadn't owned a TV for many, many years. I have magazine subscriptions. Like I get all of my, you know, as long as I get my magazines, my OT practice, my AOT journals, I have my economist, my New Yorker, I have my magazines and everything is sort of like a hand copy so I'm saying all of this to say that I didn't consume news or a lot of media content online and so I never knew and this is interesting that it comes up now because I was talking to my husband about this the other night I didn't know until very recently maybe the last six months of 2018 uh what the digital climate looked and felt like (laughs) and um Although I knew that there were quote unquote trolls and people can be mean online, that's not something that I had actually considered and gave, I didn't give a lot of thought to it. Um, those, those weren't necessarily the mental or emotional barriers that I had. When I first started, it was more a uh, concern about do I have what it takes? Um, will I make a mistake? And, um, and, you know, I, I still haven't even started practicing. Is this something that I can speak to confidently? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what? how I overcame that hurdle was by just being honest to say, you know, I, I just passed. I'm a new grad. I don't know more than you, but I do want to share with you what I do know. Now, if I had known back then, three years ago, <laughs> um, how 
the, the level of exposure and how mean the online community can be. And thankfully, that, that's, that hasn't been my experience. Our occupational therapy community has been nothing but incredibly supportive, warm. Mm. They're like my extended family to me. But, um, you know, I started watching, you know, I went into the rabbit hole in the last six months, probably because, you know, I'm watching a lot of videos related to baby stuff now that I have Noah and then I just realized and I learned and I sound I recognize that I sound really naive saying this but there are a lot of mean comments out there (laughs) and it it just made me think oh my goodness what have I um, exposed myself to and it made me think again like do I actually want to have my life, particularly now that I have no one, I have a growing family, so exposed and so publicly available. And I had to start thinking about that a lot more than I did three years ago when I, you know, didn't have a little one that I had to take care of. And I began to see a lot of cyberbullying and people just being really mean to each other. And I, said, and I thought, I don't want, you know, no one to ever be a part of this. Not that I can protect him or shelter him completely, but yeah. if I have his photo everywhere as he's growing up what right will I have later to say well no I I think maybe we should curb social media usage until you're older he's gonna be like mom you had me when I was in my diapers (laughs) (laughs) so excuse me so I think (laughs) I think you know these are not concerns that I had as much I knew that I would be exposing myself I knew that uh, you know I would have I would you know, be under greater scrutiny, but I never really thought through the entire implication. And I don't think anyone can really when you're starting. And I think that gave me the audacity and this sort of blind confidence to go forth and do it because I, I knew that this is something I felt passionate about. So as I was learning uh, what the online community looked like and what it could potentially be and how, you know, um, hostile it can be at times the only thing that anchored me and allowed me to sustain my efforts was really the community the the ot community which was just really i said before incredible and i have um just received i've been showered with so much support from our community and that is my lifeline it's what keeps me going and it's what allows me to overcome uh, the fear or the hurdle that i may have every now and then when i think ah how many people are watching this video? And then I think, you know what? It doesn't matter, you know, who's watching as long as it's helping the people that I care about, then I'm going to keep doing it. So do you think if you were aware or if you, yeah, if you were aware of, you know, I guess the negative side of putting yourself out there at the very start that you would have started in the first place? Not only, perhaps not. And it's not only knowing the negative side, but if I had known maybe how much work was involved, I don't think I would have started. (laughs) (laughs) I am just being very frank with you. I think if I had, because I had gone through every step and, you know, I took it day by day and moment by moment in the, in the time, at the time it didn't seem overwhelming, nor did I ever dread it. And I don't dread it now, but if somebody had told me, these are the things that are ahead of you in the next three years, these are the challenges that you'll overcome. These are the steps that you'll take. Eventually your website's going to break and you're going to have to do it again. And, (laughs) you know, these are everything that, and, and not to mention time and money and you know this because you you know you host a podcast and you have a website it costs money (laughs) to sustain these efforts and I think a lot of people don't know that and so uh 
you, I could have easily picked up extra PNR hours mm. instead of putting together a study guide or editing videos and publishing it and then hosting it then on my website, right? So if somebody would have told me all that it would take in terms of my effort and time <laughs> and challenges that it would come emotionally, mentally, physically, I don't think that it would have been rational for me to choose that option as a new grad. Mm. And I would have probably said, nope, goodbye. <laughs> On it's, to the next project. <laughs> it's hard looking at that kind of stuff in hindsight too, because I guess initially when you're looking at the, the workload, like when you first started, it was two videos and you look at the workload that went into those two videos. And now you look at your entire catalog and you're like, well, there's like hundreds, if not thousands of hours in the videos yeah. and in the website and in, you know, building the community and supporting the community um, on, on Facebook and that kind of stuff. But I think yeah, we only sort of get to that stage now, like because of all of that, doing all that stuff. And uh, you're right, it's similar. I I reckon the podcast is probably less effort than the videos because for me anyway, any I, I would imagine videos would take longer for me to edit than say the audio for this. But um, like building the website and all that sort of stuff, like I, it that side of it is fun for me. So I'm I'm lucky in that way. Whereas if I was having to do it, like if I was trying to make a business out of it, if I was trying to monetize it, which I have no interest in doing, um, it it yeah, it would no longer be a hobby. It would be something that I had to do. And I think that would really change, I guess, the mindset going into it. It just wouldn't feel, it wouldn't feel as fun. It wouldn't feel as, I don't know. I, I agree. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, I recently went to a stroke certification workshop and I was uh, very happy to actually run into several people who I connected with through the uh, uh, YouTube channel. And one of them asked me, she said, you know, I think I have enough content to package it and start selling it. Why don't you do that? And I thought I could, I could definitely monetize this, but the moment I do that, it's no longer a heart project. Mm. And you know, what's, what allowed me to start, it was birth really out of my own pain. This, this, this was like a labor, this was a, um, byproduct of the pain that I suffered, but what sustains it, as I told you, was the passion mm. of the, the support that I have from the community. Now, if I were to turn that and monetize it, then it would become an official work. Mm. And I don't know that I would enjoy it as much if, you know, this became work. But I also recognize at the same time, and particularly after what happened, you know, in the past six months, I recognize that for it to be sustainable and viable, you know, I can't, I have to, I have to find a way to um, support it, <laughs> whether it's through donations or for people supporting me because it does cost yeah. money and it'd be, you know, and now I'm considering like, do I, like what sort of legal protection do I need to put around it? Um, these are questions that I never had to ask myself mm. before, but I don't want to compromise the content ever again and take it away from people who really want it. And so it got me to think if I want to keep this content alive and available, uh, and if that's my commitment, then I have to find a way to sustain it. And so um, I've been thinking a lot about that as well. I can imagine. Yeah. So 
for the one person maybe that doesn't know what we're talking about, so about 10 months ago, you put yeah, up a video I saying just, why uh, I'm leaving YouTube. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, many are very familiar with this story, so I yeah. won't go into too much detail. I'll yeah, just yeah, yeah. cover just um, the main things that happened. But basically in March of last year, so in 2018, I received a cease and desist letter from the NBCOT attorney, and it was related to a trademark infringement. And... Um, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, uh, and I don't know a lot about law, but I did know enough at the time to um, know that whatever I say or do in the absence of my own legal counsel could be held against me. And not to say that that, you know, was, I didn't know the intention of NBCUT. Mm. I didn't know what the outcome would be. But at the time of receiving the letter, if you can imagine, I was, you know, still just a couple years out of school. I had just given birth really a few months back. I was a new yeah. mom. And I was in a position of transition and a, um, and so, you know, I, the first thoughts to me were like, you know, am I going to be fine? Is this a lawsuit coming? Is this going to be, um, is this going to jeopardize my license? All of these questions came flooding and I was given a few days to respond. And I, at the time decided after considering these factors, I'm just going to shut everything down until I can figure out and find myself somebody that could speak on my behalf mm. because I couldn't really decipher the letter. I knew that um, there were um, specifications as to how I should use the word, but I didn't want to make assumptions without a law degree what that all meant. So I shut the website down. I took off all of the videos from my YouTube channel and, um, this whole thing was really quite shocking for me. But what ensued thereafter was truly the most shocking part of all, because what then happened was this really massive mobilization. And, you know, OT community is quite small. I don't know how many licensed therapists there are in, a, in the United States, but, you know, it's, it's not a big profession, right? But the number of emails and letters that I re received from really across the world, Brock, like I can't, I still can't talk about it without getting emotional because this was life-changing for me. Uh, from students, my fellow OT colleagues, from professors, faculty members, program directors, attorneys, IT directors, people just offer whatever support skills they had. And this was at a time when I felt so vulnerable and mm -hmm. I felt like I couldn't trust anyone. I didn't know what I could say or what I can't say. And so I just wanted to hold up in my room and not come out for a very, very long time. Yeah, yeah. And I started, you know, receiving just, just an incredible amount of support. And that's when I realized I can't, I can't just hide. <laughs> I can't just run away. Um, people are supporting me and they believe in, in the work that I'm doing and they value my work. Mm. And, you know, up until then, I knew that people were watching my videos, but I actually didn't really know that it was so valuable and that classrooms were, you know, using my oh, really? videos. And so this came as a, you know, such an, it was such an empowering moment, encouraging and inspiring. And that's when I realized like, I'm going to, you know, um, I'm going to retain an attorney and thanks 
you know, to the community that just really gathered all of their support and financial contribution, I was able to retain an attorney. And after some back and forth, we were able to come to a very collaborative resolution that allowed me to uh, bring my content back and um, also was able to, you know, ask NBCOT if moving forward, you know, because imagine if a year from now or five years from now, like if I had to continue to work with an attorney, it would be mm. exorbitant costs. And so, you know, they actually found a point of contact that I could speak to at NBCOT so that it, you know, uh, would not have to escalate. Yep. Yeah, to awesome. that legal uh, conversation. And so things worked out really well. And, um, you know, one of the things that I really wanted was clarification. So I think for me, it was really confusing because whether you go to occupational therapy programs, websites, you know, everywhere, or, and I'm, I don't want to mention names, but if you just look up many programs or places where they might use the word, the trademark MBCOT, they're just very, the usage is wide and varied, mm. right? And um, I, I am, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I know everything about trademark law, but I do. I did know enough going into uh, and starting YouTube channel and publishing my website. I did know enough to adhere to trademark regulation. I, I was actually very uh, mindful and aware of what I needed to do. So it was a surprise to me when I received this letter because no, I thought, thanks. "Huh, I thought I was actually very compliant in trademark law." But companies and organizations do have their then more specific. Uh, requirements as to how they want their brand to be used. So for example, USC, where I graduated, they actually have a brand, trademark brand guideline that's published to specify the font, the color, mm, where yeah, it can yeah. be placed, how it can be placed. Um, and, you know, that's something that um, at the time that I received the letter that I couldn't really find from NBCOT. Yep. And so I wanted, what I wanted was clarification from them on you know, how can mm. I use it? Because within a profession, occupational therapy, which I think, you know, is misunderstood at times <laughs> and at times it is mis underrepresented to take out the word MBCOT completely. And I don't think that's what they wanted me to do. They yeah. didn't want me to stop using it necessarily. There was a way and the frequency and the, manner in which they wanted me to use it, but I simply did not understand that. And so um, for me, I wanted to continue to use the word because I think it's empowering. I think mm. we we shouldn't have to say OT certification when there's an actual term. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I now know how to use the term, the NBCOT exam, and um, am much more mindful of that and I will comply with that moving forward. But um, so it, it did come to a resolution. And um, my hope is that, uh, you know, there's there were obviously a lot of learning lessons for me and um, reflections that I had to go through with this. But it, as a content creator, and I'm sure you're aware, there are so many things that uh, that can come as a challenge and things a barrier to producing content online because mm, Online space is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. Rules are changing. Regulations are changing. And keeping abreast of all of that is actually quite difficult. 
uh, and it may hinder one's efforts or desire to do so uh, to continue to produce content. But for me, um, at the end of the day, I really love what I do, and this is worth the fight and effort. Uh, it, it's worth every. Um, ounce of effort that I put into it. So um, it really helped me. It reminded me and it solidified and crystallized my desire because I think after all of this, if my desire is still there to do it, it <laughs> lets me know, Miri, you must really, really love this and the community. And it's true. I, I love what I do and I love the connections and the meaningful uh, engagements that I have and encounters that I have with people that I meet through this online space. That's awesome. And that, that's a really good indicator of your passion for it. Yeah, if if you're, you're will, willing to fight for it, then it obviously means something to you. And that's, that goes for anyone, anyone. If you've, something, you've got something in your life that you're willing to fight for, then you know, run with it and protect it. So just to clarify, because I know this came up a lot, because I was, I was, I'll, I'll get to the, the community uh, groundswell that happened at the time. But one of the things that was confusing the general public, uh, and I think you've just sort of clarified it there, was the NBCIT's main issue wasn't necessarily like the content you were putting out. It was just the use of one of their trademark name type things. Right. Yeah. Because I think at the time there was a lot of I, – I, I it would have been called outrage, um, thinking that they were trying to shut you down because of the content you were putting out instead of like just the trademark thing. So yeah, just to clarify that that was the the issue and not the actual content itself. Yeah, it was uh really about how I can use the word NBCOT so yeah. not as an adjective. So you know I had used NBCOT as, you know, NBCOT's apostrophe something yeah. and that would then become an adjective. Um so if you noticed Every time I use NBCOT now, I would, and, and, and I'm referring to it for the exam, I would say the NBCOT exam because yep. they have to be said together. But there was no way I would have known this until yeah, this yeah. incident, but I'm glad I know now. Um, but, uh, you know, I think colloquially a lot of people use this, um, yeah. I use the word term NBCOT um, loosely and um, I understand. I, I know. I don't ever want to dismiss the importance of the trademark law. And if that's NBCOT's brand guideline, it is what it is, and um, and I have to respect that. Yeah, it just might have been helpful if that information was more readily available rather than the, <laughs> right. the route that you had to go through to find out. I guess. Yeah. I'm not actually sure. I, I know that I personally, uh, I was able to speak to somebody at NBCOT and that, get that clarification. And I'm not sure if at this time that guideline is available, but mm. um, I do think that it would be really helpful uh, for online content creators to have that because mm. I do notice now when I go through other websites or um, even podcasts, you know, people don't use the word NBCOT and I imagine maybe it's because of what, what I experienced yeah. or you know, the incident that can transpire. But I think it's important actually to be able to use that term. Um, and, 
And if there was a guideline that was available, I think that would make it really helpful and take away the mystery and maybe the fear surrounding this whole thing. And I mean, to be honest, for me too, I, it's, I don't know that I know 100% even now. Uh, what gives me assurance now is knowing that there's a person that I can yeah, call, yeah. you know, if I have a question related to that. So, yeah, that's, and that's, that's really useful rather than just getting a letter in the mail. Yeah, it was, it, I, I will say it was really scary. And I think uh, one of the effects that's had on me is now, you know, I think, well, what else, what else do I have to think about? And yeah. what else is there that, and, you know, we do live in a pretty litigious society. So I don't know that my fear was necessarily just completely baseless, right? Mm. It, who's to say that it wouldn't have gone to a lawsuit? And I, again, I don't think that that was NBC's intention um, Mm. at all, but there was no way for me to know because I didn't know anybody at NBCOT and I didn't really have any experience with NBCOT other than the certification exam, which itself is taunting. (laughs) So that was a big, uh, that was one of the big events of 2018, and I'm really, really happy that it's all behind <laughs> now. <laughs> but one of the other, like, in, rela- in relation to that too, the other big thing was, like you mentioned before, was the community support that just exploded at the time. And I remember, like, I knew, I knew obviously I'd never had to sit the NBCOT exam, so I, I haven't, I hadn't gone into depth in a lot of your videos. I was very aware of your online presence uh, and the fact that you sort of built this thing uh, for supporting people to to do the exam. But then I think it was, I think when I came across it, it was literally about six minutes after you'd posted the I'm leaving YouTube video and it was everywhere. Like OT groups, uh, the Instagram community, um, I had OTs messaging me about it, like it just exploded. And I think that was where I really went, okay, like you've got, and I think that's one of the traps we kind of fall into with the online uh, content creators is we, we just see numbers usually. So it's, you know, this many followers or this many downloads or this many views. And it's hard to conceptualize that as people sometimes, but watching that community support just, absolutely blow up for days for days after it happened and there was messages going to NBCOT on every platform I saw people posting pictures of emails they'd sent tweets they'd made Instagram posts they'd made uh, to NBCOT to the point where NBCOT put out a statement themselves directly about you and what was what was happening uh that to me really I guess, showed how much reach you had in the OT community, like how many people you'd supported, how many people really loved and and wanted to see you continue doing what you were already doing, like how many people you'd helped with that exam. There was people that one of the big things that people were doing were posting, uh, I guess, their story about how or what you'd supported them with or how you'd supported them with your content to either pass the exam or study for this or study for that, et cetera. Because there was some stuff in there that obviously some of the stuff you're posting is about, you know, specific assessments. So it wasn't necessarily for 
the MBCOT exam, they were you know using it for a, a, their undergrad or their their masters or doctorate or whatever. But people were posting their stories about how you'd help them essentially, and that was where yeah. I sort of really went, "Wow!" Like she has this absolutely enormous community of actual people, which you can now see outside of just YouTube views and downloads and that kind of stuff. It was incredible. Wow. Yeah, see, you're talking about this, and I'm like crying here because I, <laughs> again, it's uh, it makes me really emotional, and I can't, I can't. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I'm at a loss for words, but it's really been the community has always been at the heart of this project. I started it because I wanted to help other people, um, and. I wanted my story to resonate with others and I didn't want to see other people go through as much pain. And that's how it started. But again, it was really the love of the community and people who encouraged and inspired me along the way. And I received a lot of letters after this incident and I would sit there reading these letters, just like crying (laughs) in my bed because they were so, uh, because people were sharing their stories and I just never knew. I, I didn't know the extent to how much, you know, my stories meant to them. And I don't necessarily think what I realized that it wasn't just the content. I think it was just people relating to the struggles that mm. I faced in my own life. Cause I weave a lot of my own personal stories and, um, and, you know, it was very encouraging to read that. And, I feel truly, I actually do feel very undeserving of this kind of love and support. I didn't expect it. I didn't know it was there. And when it came in the form that it did, I, I was, um, it, I just simmered in it. (laughs) I took it, I received it, I simmered in it. And I used that to channel my next direction and to promise myself that um, this commitment that I started is one that I'm going to see through. And it's one that I'm going to protect. I'm going to protect it fiercely because I know what it means to our community. So it was, it's, it's been an amazing journey. (laughs) Do you sort of get the feeling now that I guess OT Miri, the brand is, almost it's kind of bigger than you the person um well it's interesting a lot of people when they write to me they say you know they start with hi otmiri or hi you know at the stroke conference i had a lot of people come up to me and say otmiri and so they call me otmiri <laughs> that is your name when yeah. I- yeah, so when I started, I, I said OT because I wanted there to be a promise, prominence to occupational therapy. Yeah. And I didn't like that I had to study from, you know, not to, this isn't a shade on like physical therapists or doctors or nurses. It's just, I just wanted there to be more occupational therapy representation mm. uh, in the online space. So I was mindful to call it OT Mary to say, if you're watching this video, know that it's an occupational therapist. Um, but I didn't think that it would get coined like that, uh, where people would see me literally on the street and say, hey, OT Mary. Um, but it's... Uh, I think when I first started, uh, there was definitely um, a lot more 
people who called me Mary, but people who are discovering my YouTube channel now think of me and don't know any background story or anything. Think of me as a, an entity, a company, which um, I don't know that I really like I was because I'm not. <laughs> And it takes away from the intimacy and the personable approach that I yeah, yeah. want to have with every member. And so uh, when I, you know, now you look at the website and you'll see that I have all of these videos and they're like, she probably has like a whole team of people and this is this Otimiri company, but it is, and it's just me. And I feel like I'm just like everybody else. And I'm still, I still consider myself a new grad. And so a lot of people that, study with me and pass with me I still write to them like hey what are your tips can you tell me about acute care setting can you tell me what you do with this situation so I'm still learning and growing and I want to always maintain that perspective and that position that I am not this company that's you know, teaching, but mm. I am just one of the community members. I'm growing with them. I'm going through the transitions with them. And I want to learn from our community uh, just as much. And I, I do um, because everyone goes into different settings and then they always, you know, keep in touch and will come back and say, Hey, this is something really cool that I learned another trick or lesson that I hadn't thought about when I was taking the exam, but I think it's really helpful. And so I get a lot of just good uh, knowledge and data from people that in our community. So it goes actually both ways. Is that how you, I guess, come up with like what videos you're going to make? Is it usually just like, oh, I saw this really interesting thing over here. I can make a video about that. Or if you got like a, are you that super organized person that like maps out the whole year about what you're going to film and that kind of thing? Like how, what's your process? When I first started, I was really ambitious and I had a list of videos that I wanted to make and then life happened. I got pregnant, I had a baby and then, you know, I had, to, <laughs> so it didn't necessarily work out that I was able to keep to the schedule that I wanted. So um, once I realized that, I decided that I'm going to prioritize each the most difficult um, concept. So it's remained the same. I started with difficult concepts and I continue to stick with what I felt personally was most difficult and the type of video requests that I get the most. And so I know that milestones was like a really big one. A lot of people request that and um, spinal cord injury and cardiac. And so just big content areas. And I never go into really great detail. I don't know if you, have, if you watched any of my videos, but I really cover a lot of my content broadly and conceptually uh, so that it gives them uh, just an idea of how I approached it personally. And if, you know, it might work for some people, it might not work for other people, but it's just showing them one of the strategies that they can use to break down the content area. So, um, yeah, in that sense, I don't necessarily have a list or uh, a goal of what I want to cover, but I always listen to the community and the number of requests that I get on any number of any given topic. Mm -hmm. And then if I get a lot of requests on that topic, then I'll make a video on it. So it does sound like I've, I watched a few of the videos here and there, and it, my take on your videos is it's more more than just like – lecture content kind of teaching the actual concepts it's more like here's how i would break it down to study it if that makes yes. sense so yes. it's it's more of a i guess more study guide than lecture i think so yeah 
uh, it's giving them another way to look at the content too. So instead of, you know, and it's, and it's especially important, I think, for occupational therapy, because so much of what we're learning is to enhance the quality of our patient's life and to get them back into doing what they want to do, occupation. And so almost everything that we talk about can be translated in our daily life and in what we do, whether it's putting on a bracelet or brushing our hair. And what kind of movements are we using when we're brushing our hair? Uh, what kind of wrist movement do we need to have? And what kind of functional grasp or power grip do we need to have when we're putting on makeup or brushing our teeth? And so bringing these real life examples into dense study content will make the information stick a little more. And so I simply give a few examples of that. And then, you know, whoever's watching will say, oh, I have my own example of how a radial nerve injury could impact my occupations, right? And so it's just giving them different um, different methods that might stick better. And it's incredible what then happens from there because some people write, you know, write comments and they're like, oh, that reminded me, uh, this is one, another thing that I do in my occupation. And so people also read through the comments and learn from other people in the community um, because there's no one right way to study. Mm. We learn so differently and there are so many different learning styles. And I want to empower people to study based on their own learning style. And by showing them that my learning style worked for me and it's one of the ways I want them to see that and say, oh, that's a different way that I hadn't considered. Maybe I can come up with my own. And when that happens, that makes me really happy. Not when they're memorizing content and not when they come back and say, you know, I now know 10 details that I really needed to know. But when they say, I know how to apply this clinically because I have a personal story of my own that makes perfect sense. And I'll never forget it because it's now become a part of my own story. And that's really what makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the best way to learn. That's how, that's how I learn as well. Like if I've got something that I can anchor this new piece of information to from my own story or from my experience or things I've seen, if I've got something that I already know that I can link that with, I'm going to remember it rather than just trying to, you know, read it from a book and trying to memorize it for cold. So yeah, I think that's, that's an, I think most universities should be like trying to get most of their learning to to work that way so the fact that you're really conscious of it as well is is amazing it's so good thank you thank you it's because i was never a traditional um student <laughs> growing up in korea i was always told my parents were told that i am very much delayed and that I would never go to college. There were a lot of things spoken over my life that, you know, if I think about it now in retrospect, I'm like, man, those were not very encouraging things to be told <laughs> as a child. But in a very fiercely academic driven culture, uh, if you were not fitting perfectly into their, their milestones and their standard of what was the norm, quote unquote, then you were stigmatized and you were labeled as being, you know, delayed and, you know, they then predicted your entire future. And so coming from that background and knowing that one size does not fit all, that there are so many different ways that you can learn and so many different, like we take, some people take, you know, 
a month to study for the MBCOT, but some people, they may take a lot, many more months. And instead of like learning everything, they would have to learn everything to the detail in order for them to be able to piece everything together. I mean, we just have so many different ways to learn. And I think accept that, accepting our strengths and limitations and being able to discover what our strengths are and honing in on that is so important. And I had to do that throughout my life. And I continue to, you know, um, struggle through a lot of areas and topics that, and I think I still take longer than most people to master a certain content area, but I think that's okay. We all have different styles and timeline and I think honoring that and recognizing the importance of that is just uh is really important yeah definitely and I think well, I think everyone can relate to that I know I definitely can and like I know when I was at uni because we're like we don't have what we do now but when I went through it was all everyone was undergrad entry for OT um so when I was doing like well, I have a bachelor's in occupational therapy when I was doing that the theoretical stuff was just, I just couldn't get my head around it. Whereas the practical stuff, maybe it's a guy thing. I don't know. The practical stuff, I was all okay. over it. Like it was that I found that really easy. Whereas nowadays the the theoretical stuff really interests me and I can sink my teeth into that. No worries. And probably some of the more app, like application of stuff might be, either the same or a little bit more difficult, but the theoretical stuff uh, I'm really good with nowadays as opposed to like, and it's just different learning styles over time. Like if you're hitting that exam at different ages, you're going to study differently as well. So, you know, being aware of, I think that's the one good thing about that exam is I think you can, you just book in when you're ready for it. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So you can take, as long as you're aware of what you need, then you can take whatever, however long you, you're allowed, and then book in and do the exam when you're ready, once you've done what you need to do. If it takes you a month, if it takes you a year, whatever, just being aware of your learning style is is really important and what, what you need from it. So you, you said before that you grew up in Korea. When did you move to the States? When I was nine. And did you find, so you were saying that, they're very, I guess, rigid um, milestones uh, had you indicated as delayed and all that kind of stuff. Did you, did, that, did you get that same feedback once you got to the States or was it simply just difference in milestones that was, well, a difference in the actual, I guess, the yardstick, how we measure them between the two countries? So when I first came from Korea at the age of nine, I didn't speak English. I didn't even know the alphabets. And so it was really hard to know where I fit in terms of, you know, the norm and if I was delayed or if I was on track because I couldn't take any tests. I was in ESL classes. And so it wasn't until many years later that I was able to uh, go into uh, classes and take standardized tests and whatnot. But in Korea, uh, they actually published your ranking and they would post how you scored in the hallways. And so I always knew exactly where I ranked and it was at the very bottom always. <laughs> and yeah. my sister, my oldest sister was always at the top. She was an undefeated first <laughs> and I was an undefeated last. <laughs> 
And so our family actually was quite famous in our neighborhood and our school district because out of the same family came a genius and one that just always trailed behind. And, um, you know, if you scored below, like grossly below the average, you actually would have to come up to the front of the class and they would uh, take a stick and hit you in the calf uh, as if it were your fault that you were underperforming. (laughs) And so this was, you know, quite traumatic for me. And you also had to stay after school. There is an afternoon school program for students who can't perform to their ability. And so I would have to stay for a couple hours. I actually, my memory falters. I, it felt like many hours, but I'm sure it was just a couple hours that I would have to stay and review the material. But regardless of how much time I poured into and energy I poured into memorizing and studying this content, it never really stuck. I never really got better when I was studying in Korea. And my father, he, you know, when I was younger, he said, you know, Miri, um, it's okay. You can just pursue music, (laughs) Uh, play the piano, uh, draw, whatever you want to do, do pursue what you want to pursue. Um, You know, because they were told that I would never go to college, you know, and fast forward year, like 10 years, you know, I ended up going to UC Berkeley and then graduated with the highest honors <laughs> and then went to USC for the OT program. And no one would have been able to predict that based on my performance. And that's not to say that getting to Berkeley or the USC program, it wasn't easy. Just as it was difficult for me to barely get through elementary school. It was really hard. And I, knowing that it takes me that much longer, I found myself having to study a lot more than my peers and my friends just to be able to get the score that they were able to get studying maybe 15, 20 minutes. Um, But that was okay because once I learned it, I really learned and mastered the content. And I uh, started to develop something of like a photographic memory (laughs) because I would read my material, like my textbooks. Brock, I would read it cover to cover. I was so determined to not let those people who told me I would never go to college dictate my future and determine where I was going to go. I wanted to prove all of them wrong. And so, you know, there are books and I actually still have some of them where, you know, like from college where I had like tear marks on my textbooks. I was relentless. I, I read cover to cover to such an extent that there were times when I was taking the exam, I would flip through the pages in my mind's eye and I would be able to, I would, I would see the words as well as the page number as I flipped it through my mind. Cause I had read it so many times and um, I wrestled with my material academically and I did that for the MBCOT exam as well <laughs> to pass it the second time. I don't think there are shortcuts and I don't, I've never been one to take shortcuts and um, for me it works and it, it's just how I've uh, managed academic life all my life. So that I don't think I've ever read a book at all that voraciously. <laughs> that's amazing um to, to, i can't say that i did that for every class or every topic no. ones that i you know really love and felt was very important for me but yeah yeah still fair that's that's amazing do you think so i would hazard a guess to say then that what most people would look at as a i guess a negative you know being told that you're delayed and 
you know, made to sit at the front of the class and made to do all this, like, it's kind of, it, it's in a way, I guess, shaped you who you are and, and helped get you to where you've oh, gotten. absolutely. Absolutely. I think my challenges were my blessings. And I think that, you know, why fit in? Why why do we have to fit that. into the society? Why do you have to be normal? I It took me actually a long time for me to become comfortable in my own skin, to uh, be okay being quirky, to be okay not, you know, English is my second language. So even now I still draw my articles here and there and I might make mistakes. And although I may know a lot of GRE words, there are a lot of like uh, simple basic words that you would learn in elementary school that I still don't know because I came when I was nine years old. Yep. And so, you know, I'm teaching certain words and trucks and the basic words, right. With my son. And I'm like, Oh, I never knew that this was called so-and-so. And I have moments like that even now, but I think all of these challenges and um, not fitting in and having to find my own way and being being forced to sit through my discomfort out of my comfort zone really, really shaped my character and the person that I am today because I always had to problem solve. I always had to look outside the box and say, okay, well, that obviously is not going to work for me, but if I still want it, um, what is it that I have to do? And this really is at the heart of occupational therapy and perhaps why I chose OT. I don't think that there was ever a moment where I was like, OT is a calling, I'm going to go for it. But my entire life, the ideals that I espouse to and the kind of life that I want to live really resonates with the ideals of occupational therapy in that OT is not a one size fits all type of model. OT doesn't say, okay, well, let's go and fix this right here with a surgery. Let's go and uh, fix this by increasing your range of motion and improving your strength. I mean, what the doctors and physical therapists and nurses do are incredible, right? But when those methods fail, when the medical model fails, when there is no remediation of the physical deficit, occupational therapists will come and say, hey, listen, I still have something Mm. that might be able to get you into the occupation or your passion that you want you once enjoyed. Can we try this compensatory strategy? Can we try this adaptive equipment? Can we try something outside the box to allow you to still do what you enjoy? Regardless of the function loss, regardless of the trauma you've incurred, regardless of the fact that you may not be fitting in the norm of what everyone else is doing, you still have remaining abilities that you can tap into. And once you hone that, you can own it and you can utilize it and you can still tap into your highest potential that no one even imagined that you could. I feel like that's my life story. And I I get really passionate when I talk about this because this is at the heart of occupational therapy. And how can I, as an occupational therapy practitioner, not be inspired to apply that to my own life when our profession calls to that? Like we are called to those ideals when we look at somebody struggling uh, because of whatever perceived deficit or loss of function that they may have. And all of my life, I felt like there was a loss or a deficit that somebody imposed on me or by virtue of the poverty that we lived in, by virtue of the fact that I was delayed, by virtue of the fact that I immigrated here and didn't speak English for many years, all of those things could have made me feel like, well, this is something that I'm going to resign my life to. Like, I'm just going to be 
poor for the rest of my life. I'm just not, you know, I'm just not going to fit in. But no, it's you then have to say, well, this is not the entirety of who I am. There's something still beautiful. There's something still resilient and strong. And I'm going to discover that even if you don't see it. I'm going to hone it and I'm going to run with it. And I think that's, you know, that's my story. And I think it aligns really well with the philosophy of occupational therapy. You are the perfect example of someone who literally lives and breathes OT. I love OT. (laughs) You're not, not just an OT, like OT is you, like everything, like even in that, that, little passages then everything that you've experienced everything that you do the way you look at the world is ot and it comes through in the passion that you you speak about the profession in which is amazing because that's that's what i that's what i love and that's one of the things i've lots of people ask if they can come on the podcast and i'm like well i i I talk to people who i find interesting and one of the things i find interesting is passion because it doesn't matter if you work in an area that I've never even considered. If you're passionate about it, that's that's what I love. That's the, the, the stuff I love to hear. So, yeah, you are that in spades. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, I think that a lot of it's it's really tragic to me that a lot of people don't understand what occupational therapy is. And I think when you're a student, uh, you come across a lot of online memes nowadays, like, you know, that kind of allude to how uh, misunderstood we are as a profession. And it's funny as a student, and then you look at it over and over again, and then later you won't be laughing. You're like kind of crying when you see that meme because you're like, why? Why don't they understand the value that we provide? Why don't they understand the distinct, distinct, unique value that we bring to our patients and to our community? And I don't really know what the answer is to that, uh, frankly, but there's always a part of me that is trying to understand and find a way to better advocate for and to better convey what it is that we do as a profession and as a practitioner so that, you know, people know what OT is, but it's, it's a difficult task. And I think like just relating that back to what the, essentially the story that you've just told as well is because the, the OT memes thing is something I'm a bit, I'd say passionate about because I don't like them. I don't think they. Oh, re- really? <laughs> I, I don't like them because I don't feel like. I think one. I feel like they're kind of adding to the problem is because people don't understand what we uh, what we do. But then these really big popular meme accounts that a lot of OTs share don't really shed any light on that. All they do is cement that no one knows what we do. And I think similar to what you were saying before is. People, like you were saying with yourself, like you could have very well resigned to the fact that, you know, I'm delayed and I didn't speak English and blah, 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 blah. People, uh, I've seen a lot of students that like comments on some of those memes about, oh, no one understands what we do. And they've almost resigned themselves to we're this weird profession that no one knows what we do and that's just the way it is. And that aspect of it just annoys me because I'm like, you've literally (laughs) highlighted a problem that 
every OT needs to get on board with and do something about fixing. And it's almost like they're just, I guess, sitting with it and, and accepting that this is just the way it is. No one knows what we do. This is just the way it is. Yeah, I never actually considered it from that perspective at all, but I could see where you're coming from. For me, I've always seen that platform, like the memes platform, as a way to uh, build camaraderie and uh, to uh, share and commiserate together uh, within the OT profession because there's not a lot. Well, I guess there is a space where we can share other spaces where we can share that, but you do see a lot of people come together sort of in solidarity to see, say, yes, we are misunderstood. And I, for me, actually, it's a, it's been a space. It felt like a safe space where I can go. Cause I can't say that to my family or friends or to my PT colleagues or somebody else. And I can't say, Oh my gosh, what was me? Nobody knows about my profession, but there was always a little bit of comfort where I can go to my own OT colleague. Cause they, they know exactly what I'm talking about. They know my misery and my pain and they can commiserate with me. And so um, I, to me, it's always been an account where, or a platform, a space, a safe space where I can go to say, no one knows us. Uh, what do we do and you know there is levity and um to it so i i found myself enjoying it and like it's just so witty <laughs> i've never considered myself a witty person and so i could never you couldn't pay me to come up with memes like that but some of them <laughs> really have me like like rolling in bed laughing sometimes when i should be sleeping <laughs> So we won't. What, know, what you're saying is, so we won't be seeing like OT Miri memes group anytime soon. Then no, I, I like I said, I don't. <laughs> I don't have that kind of humor. I couldn't come up with it, even if I tried. I mean, some of them are so hilarious. You know, my husband will look at me and he's like, "What are you laughing?" And I'm like, "Look at this meme. It's so funny." And I'm just like, just cackling in public. But yeah, it's a. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I have to old to appreciate it this is something that you know um i didn't grow up with and it doesn't come naturally to me so when i see it it's it just the hilarity behind it often gets me <laughs> you're too old i'm older than you i don't know i don't know a lot of people don't guess my age correctly <laughs> yeah fair fair <laughs> that's good genetics OT is my third career <laughs> Five, well there you go well, then yeah. maybe we are of similar age. I'll yes. say that. Yes. I had a couple of questions from people who knew that I was recording with you. Uh, and okay. I'm going to ask you them. That's okay with you. They're not difficult. Yeah. I'm sure you'll have amazing answers for all of them. Um, <laughs> so there was a few people asking about what is... Oh, I've got to read this one. So what is one piece of advice that you could give for students going into fieldwork? One piece of, <laughs> one well, piece of advice? Some advice. Some advice. Okay. Um, Doesn't have to hmm. be one. we got time. I think I have so many. Yeah. Well, for one, I think it's really important to set realistic expectations I think, you know, a lot of us get excited and nervous uh, when we're about to start field work and 
We want to go in there and, you know, show them that we really know what we're doing. We don't want to get in trouble. We certainly don't want to fail our field work, right? And so there's some anxiety going into it. But I think it's important to, uh, again, set realistic expectation. You're not going to know everything. This is really your first exposure in the clinical setting if you haven't had any healthcare experience before. And people aren't going to expect you to know everything. So in setting realistic expectation, know that it's okay to have questions um, and ask a lot of questions. Now, I wouldn't recommend that you ask questions incessantly throughout the day, maybe come up with a strategy to ask these questions so that it's, uh, you know, either beginning or at the end and, you know, questions that aren't readily or easily found through your own research, like do your own diligence and try to answer your own question. And when you can't find an answer, uh, then go to your clinical instructor and say, you know, this is what I think, but I wanted to hear your perspective. So asking, using this opportunity to ask a lot of questions, I think is really important. Um, Communication, I think, is also very important. And uh, this is something that I had to work on a lot with my clinical instructor because I think as a student, uh, I... I always felt like I couldn't hold my own and I wasn't sure what I could do, what I couldn't do. And so whatever was expected of me, whatever was asked of me, I just felt like I needed to do everything. And I think that can quickly lead to burnout. But I think, you know, sharing what your learning style is and what makes you thrive and seeing if there's a way to uh, find a middle ground between your and your interaction and a learning experience that's mutually beneficial and establishing that instead of always feeling burnt out, always feeling misunderstood Mm. and not like you're being mentored or supported, I think is important. And the CI is not 100% responsible for establishing that. I think you as a student can definitely initiate and play an active role, um, not just actually in field work, but even in your work setting. So empower yourself. Know that you do have a voice even as a student and come with questions. Uh, Try to find a your thriving element and, you know, your learning style and see it, how that matches with your clinical instructor style of teaching so that you can really maximize your learning experience. I, I really like your, what you said with regards to the due, due diligence because um, that was one of the things, I'm obviously not working clinically now, but when I was working clinically and I had uh, students with me on placement, one of the things that I really liked as a supervisor uh, were students that, yes, they had lots of questions, but had uh, at least attempted to find a solution to whatever the question was and then brought that to me as, here's what I was thinking, here's what I found, is this what you would do or is this you know how I would go mm-hmm. about this, as opposed to what do I do? Because um, to me that shows a few things. One, it's it's a good learning thing for the student to be able to find information because there's going to be sources of information on a placement that you don't normally have access to. You know, there's going to be textbooks you've never seen and notes and other therapists of not just OTs, but other therapists that you can get information from stuff that you don't normally get when you're at uni. So being able to effectively utilize these new information sources to try and answer your own questions first, and then going to your supervisor or essentially almost the confirmation of this, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I do, or 
you're on the right track. Here's how you might want to look at it as well. Or did you see this resource, et cetera, et cetera. So the, I think the students that I, I, if there's absolutely nothing and you need to ask like the, what do I do question? Go for it. Don't hesitate. But I would have expected that I, I, enjoy, I liked the students that had put in some effort to try and find an answer before they came or, or came with some sort of answer or here's what we learned at uni, et cetera. Because there's a lot of things that there's one of the things we tried to teach a lot of our CIs is the students are coming out with probably a more up-to-date knowledge of the profession and the models and all of that kind of stuff than they have. So it's a good learning opportunity yeah. for them to learn off the students. And it's also it's surprisingly difficult to get that through the student's head. Like you have this body of knowledge that you've literally just got taught in the last couple of years and your uh, supervisor can learn from you as well. So bringing, uh, I find that getting the students to bring uh, some solutions is also a good way to bridge that gap because they can come and say, like, listen, we learned this model at uni, blah, 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 and the, and the, the supervisor might go, oh, I haven't heard of that. How does that work? And it starts a dialogue between them where they're both learning. Uh, which is, a, I feel, a far more productive way of peer learning than just, here, you ask a question and I'll answer the question kind of thing. So, Absolutely. Yeah, I really like the, the your, your due diligence. I can't even say the word now. <laughs> due diligence uh, yes. comment around that. So one of the other questions was very similar, but what is your, oh, this one's asking for a number one piece. What is your number one piece of advice for new grads who want to work in a pediatric setting? Hmm. Hmm. Well. You can give a couple if one's too Well, specific. I'll preface this by saying that I don't have a whole lot of experience in the pediatric setting, although my first setting was in home health pediatrics. But um, as a new mom and um, having, you know, and through my exposure in the pediatric setting, I find that one of the most important things, and perhaps this will translate and is just as important across all settings, but uh, is to really know that you are working as a team. And, uh, and again, whether you're working in private outpatient clinic or a school setting, your role as an occupational therapist or certified occupational therapy assistant will be different. So I guess it, it will vary depending on your setting as well. But really, regardless of the setting, you, you will be working as a as an integral part of the team, you'll be able to, you'll be communicating with parents, you'll be communicating with the medical staff, you'll be communicating with students. And it's particularly when you're working with babies, I mean, you're going to be teaching the parents what they can do to carry over some of these skills at home. And so your ability to communicate, I think, is so important. Um, and so communications and being a good team member and to really be able to educate um, and um, empower the caregivers and the parents so that the carryover happens, I think is really important to consider when you're working with children and babies in the pediatric setting. Um, another thing that, and I think I speak this more as a mother than a, maybe an occupational therapist, but to understand that every child is 
really different. <laughs> I guess you can extrapolate this to say every individual is really different, but um, among moms, uh, particularly new moms, there is this great expectation of how your children should perform. And it starts at birth. <laughs> and have they met their milestones at month two? At month four, I mean, they're, they're tiny little creatures. And I understand that milestones are important and they shed insight and knowledge into where they are. But, you know, some kids may not crawl at all. Some babies may not crawl at all. Some babies might learn to walk at month 12. Other might walk at 18 months. And so being patient uh, with your child and being able to uh, understand that every child is unique and diff- develops at a different rate and pace. And that you, I think that's really important to keep in mind, especially when you are working in, in early intervention. Uh, this is something that I get a lot of questions on, even on my YouTube channel. And since I posted the milestones videos, I received a lot of uh, messages and questions about how there are numerous, not numerous, countless milestone charts all across, like whether you're looking at CDC or um, pediatric clinics or where, wherever it may be, the guidelines for the milestones from birth to, I don't know, six years, it just why it's, it varies so wildly. And it's no wonder it's because Children are different and they don't fit into perfect quadrants and perfect charts. And so I think understanding that and giving yourself the ability to not only look at numbers and data and statistics, but to look at the child as a whole, look at the culture, the environment, look at their performance. I mean, mm-hmm. utilize the clinical skills and skilled observations that you learned in school and apply applying that in clinical uh, situation, I think is really, really important. And I think you learn to do that naturally over the years when you practice. But I think as a new grad, you want everything to sort of fit, right? If you're working in pediatrics, you're like, they're not fitting into the perfect chart that I'm reading here. What is wrong? If you're working in acute care, you're like, well, I learned that with a C6 spinal cord injury, you have to be at this level, but I don't see this. It's never going to translate perfectly what you see in the textbook into clinical life situation. So I know that this person asked about pediatric setting, and I, I think regardless of whether you're working on pediatrics or any other setting, uh, understanding that there are individual differences that make recovery and prognosis and the pattern of, you know, even recovery very different, um, even if the textbook doesn't say so. And so being flexible, being patient, and being able to communicate all this effectively as an integral part of a team member, I think is important. Definitely. And that's something I've I've seen with new grads as well is quite often, uh, even, even some students actually on placement, they, I think because we spend so much time at university, like, dropping all of this knowledge and they have to try and absorb all of this that when they get out it's all right i just have to apply this stuff that i've learned and it's usually you know in a textbook you you don't get a lot of variation in a textbook because it's a textbook it'll give you the information and like you said before it'll come in a chart or something like that because that's the easiest way to try and get across huge amounts of information but don't don't treat it like gospel. Don't think that this is the one and only way that things can be done. Don't think that, you know, if a, a client this is you know, or, or a child or whoever you're working with, it doesn't even have to be in pediatrics, 
if they're not fitting perfectly into this model or perfectly into this milestone that there's something wrong or that, you know, we need to, like, be patient, use your... uh, You can use your occupational models and have a look at that person as a whole, their environment, like you said, their culture, their social environment, you know, school, work, whatever they have, like, have a look at the big picture and you'll get a better understanding of not just or they're not hitting this milestone, but why? Like, is there something that we might be able to uh, adjust slightly with their environment that might help support them into naturally developing along that milestone? Like, we don't have to, oh, they're not walking. We need to start, you know, doing all these interventions to get them walking. Like, we just need to help support them to develop the way they develop. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's important, like you said, it's important that we don't, yes, the a lot of the models and the research and all that sort of stuff comes out with these standardized ideas of how someone should develop. Again, like everyone's different. Childs develop at different rates. Um, even like talking to my mom, like the differences between what's developed when between me and my brothers and sisters and stuff, like it's all different. Um, yeah. So just... Be a little bit flexible when you're looking at it. Not necessarily flexible, but open-minded, I would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Another question. What, where, where to next for the OT Miri online platform? What's the, the next iteration going to look like? Is it more of the same or have you got... Uh, some new ideas, some different directions. What's 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 in the plan? What's in the works? Hmm, I I'm giving a lot of thought, and I'm not sure that I have the answer to that just yet. But one thing that I don't want to change, uh, and one thing that I want to continue to do is produce content. Um, that that is really important to me and I know that that's what is valued from our community and not just content that uh, regurgitates the textbook. Uh, It takes me a long time to put my content together because I don't just um, put out what's available. I always personalize it to stories and occupations. And so it's, there's certainly, you know, strategies that I used while I was preparing for the exam myself. But when you are trying to wrap that for somebody who is not you, who doesn't have your lived experience, you can't just, uh, you know, spill all of that out. It has to make sense to a viewer who doesn't know you. And so that kind of content creation for me is, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work, but it's one that I think is very meaningful work. And I want to continue to do that no matter how busy my life gets. Um, I get a lot of um, invitations for speaking engagements and that's hard for me to juggle uh, with content creation, but it's something that I love so much. So I want to make more time uh, and space for that to happen, even if it's through Skype or Zoom, uh, because the experiences that I've had visiting different campus and meeting those two students, they, they will be like a life 
lifelong memory for me. And to actually see them in person and to share stories after corresponding with them online and, you know, celebrating our, you know, achievements together after we pass. I mean, it's just so wonderful to be able to forge that friendship. And so I've been really fortunate to have met so many people in real life, really. So, um, you know, a lot of people just think that I, you know, interact only online, but I've but actually met real people. <laughs> Yeah, like I've, I've, I meet people randomly on the streets or people have actually flown out from different states to meet me. And it's been incredible. Or like, you know, going up to campus to meet these uh, students at various OT programs. That really is such a wonderful, that's just like the cherry on the icing for me. And I love it. So I want to do more of that if time permits. But I, I want to balance that. Um, I want to be very mindful to balance that with, you know, still making time for content creation because that, that takes a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, um, I can imagine, well, I can't even imagine how long it would take me to make it, but I, I would imagine making videos. And like, like you said, like they're not just, you know, I filmed this vlog on my iPhone kind of thing. Like they're really good. They've got like overlay and all sorts of stuff in there. Like they're really, really high quality videos and really great um, learning tools. So I could imagine Thank that they take time to get to that level that you, you're happy with it and that you, you know, they're, they're quite consistent too. Like you same fonts and the color schemes and like it all looks very, <laughs> all looks very professional. Um, Thank you. I know awesome. nothing about it actually. I, I learned on the go so i i appreciate you saying that because i always feel that it doesn't look professional i've gotten you know if i did get any negative comments it would be people like hey use a better mic i'm like i don't have a mic use a camera i'm using my computer i don't have a camera (laughs) you know so people are always telling me to upgrade my equipment but you know i i always felt like content is king like you don't need that great of an equipment if you have the content that's the substance right the the quality content and as, so, long, as long as you can yeah. see it and hear it then yeah, it's right. fine it, <laughs> it's the same it's the same with um with podcasting like it, people can you can make a podcast with just your iphone like i'm, I'm pretty sure oh, up until recently the ladies who run ot after dark used to just record their podcast on their iphone um oh wow like as long as like you said the content is good and the audio is listenable it's not like right. hectic um then it's it's all good you don't need thousands you don't need a studio you don't need thousands of dollars worth of kit um mm-hmm. and i right. think for from a i guess a content creator's point of view one of the biggest things that i've seen mainly with a few podcasters is that sort of fear of getting started and the you know they either oh i need this i need a mic and i need you know a digital recorder and i need yeah. blah, blah 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 and i'm like just start just put right. it out you'll improve as you go like i've got certain equipment that i've got now but i didn't start with this and you you can hear the difference if you go back and listen to like one of the first That's couple so of episodes right. And then right. you listen to what it sounds like now, and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's that's there's a massive difference in the audio quality, but I would like to think maybe the content's getting better as well as I get more practiced with it. But that's part of growing. There's, if I if I 
waited to start until, you know, I had all the gear and, you know, I felt like I was really good, then I probably just never would because I'd never think anything's perfect. That's, I guess, my absolutely my cross to bear, but yeah. It hits, yeah, it hits on what you asked me earlier. Would you have started if you would have known how hard it is, how many hurdles you would have had to, you know, and it's – you know, I think a lot of people would say, no, I'm not going to sign up for something that would take that many hours and energy. But once you start, you see that, you know, there's a lot of moments where it's rewarding, it's meaningful, and you're taking it day by day, moment by moment. And so, uh, yeah, I think starting, just getting started is important, but you have to be passionate about it because it will not last if you this is a dreadful work and you don't want to do it. I actually get a lot of questions from, you know, students or not students who ask me how I started the YouTube channel and what they need, what I, you know, what they need to have prepared or equipment. And maybe I'm the bad person to ask because I don't have anything, but you know, I always tell them as long as you know, what you want to talk about. And if you, if you have something of value that you want to provide that you think could help people and you're passionate about it, I really think that's the only ingredient you need to get started. Maybe you'll need more as, you know, as you see the needs evolve, but let those needs cannot be anticipated or seen ahead of time because a true need is usually dictated by the community and it's voiced by the Mm. community. And how can you identify that before you've started with the community? Um, everything that I've built upon was built upon because of the inspiration that came from the voice that, you know, of the community. So I think getting started is really important and not getting bogged down by the details from the beginning. And I think, like you said, like the, the passion is important, especially if it's going to be you know, a creative project or a, what you call it earlier, a heart project. Heart project. This is heart my project. heart project. I like yeah. I've never heard that before, but I like it. But yeah, especially if it's going to be something like that that you're going to <laughs> to roll out as something that you want to do, then yeah, if if you're doing it because you feel like it's just filling a need and it's not something you're super passionate about, like if I was going to make a like if if a complete flip, if I was going to start say a podcast on say the content that you put out around the the exam like my my heart's not in that it'd probably last half an episode before i went yeah this isn't <laughs> this isn't me like I could, one i don't know anything about it two i'm not engaged enough in the community to know what the community needs out of it uh like i, I it just wouldn't and no one would listen because i'd sound bored as i wouldn't know what the hell i was talking about so like find what you're passionate if you're passionate about something really specific so be it but the other thing i would think and I, I i think you'll agree with me is don't don't start so especially if it's something that you're really passionate about don't start it with the expectation that you're going to have billions of listens or billions of downloads or billions right. of views like when i first started this i'm like dude if i get 10 people to listen to this thing i'm stoked um <laughs> and there's a couple more than 10 but you know it's it's not that that's not that shouldn't be the reason why I, I see a lot of people we live in a culture now that you know youtuber is a profession like people make money off youtube and i think if you're yeah. if you're going to start like we were saying earlier if you're going to start 
you've got a passion for something and you're going to start making some content around that, if you start that with the purpose of I'm going to make some money off that, even if it's just <laughs> I'm going to make money to pay the expenses, it's not going to be as authentic and it's not going to – honestly, it's not going to be as good as if you just yeah, do it. And I think it's important to demystify that too because I yeah. think a lot of people think that YouTubers in general make a lot of money. <laughs> And I just want to show them my checking account. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to say, you know, if you want to make money, pick up PR in hours, work extra shifts, work overtime, but let YouTube not be your solution. Because unless you've got millions of subscribers, unless you've got just a lot of wash hours, um, and this is no secret that ad dollars, they're not going to pay much at all. I mean, if you look at the time that's invested and like the platform, like website and hosting, you're like running in the negative. But I think a lot of people have this idea that if you start a YouTube channel, you'll make a lot of money. And that is a sure way to burn out very quickly because you're going to find that that is not the case. And so when people ask me, that's something that I'm very clear about. I say, you know, you cannot do it for money. You have to really love the topic and the thing that you're doing. Otherwise, um, it's going to, you know, because at times you're going to run in the, you're going to put in your own money to sustain this. <laughs> yeah, you are. Um, you are. So it's, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, misconception around that, but yeah. yeah but this I, is something, uh, definitely a hard project. And I can see that Occupied is a hard project for you too. And so I think that's the key to sustaining any endeavor, right? Is that you, uh, you live it, you breathe it, it's something that you believe in, and it's something that you advocate for. And as long as you have that, I think that is the, uh, that is, you know, no one can take that away from you, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it'll evolve and your original idea for where you very first started, you know, it might stay similar, but you know, you're like I was saying before, like my, even my technique and my skill with regards to how I do these podcasts, like it'll change, it'll evolve, it'll turn into what it needs to, but you need to stay true to you, stay true to what you want to be doing. Because like we said, you're not going to make money off it. I I don't care who says otherwise. (laughs) Unless you're, you know, Joe Rogan or someone like that who with, like you said, millions of subscribers or millions of downloads, like it's not, that's not what the platform should be for. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think if you are really passionate about creating content and putting content out there, then that, that, and that's enough, then go for it. Like just start. And like my favorite podcasts and youtube channels are people that just do that like they thoroughly enjoy it and you can feel it in in the content that they actually create because they care about it and you know like you can even just scrolling through like i can see that you care about it because of the effort that you've put into it and you know the the to use a marketing term the branding like it looks similar you can tell I can look at that thumbnail and go, that's an OT Miri video beside the, <laughs> beside the fact that you're in the thumbnail. But um, <laughs> like the, the effort, it's a lot of effort. It doesn't matter what platform you're using. Some are obviously going to be more effort than others. Some like 
when I started this, and I'm assuming you were probably the same when you started YouTube. Like, I didn't know anything about making a podcast when I first started. Like, I did all the research and then I learned as I went. So the first few episodes are probably pretty rough because I was still trying to work out how it all worked. (laughs) So, but you got to start. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that answered all of my questions that I had from our lovely listeners. The last question was about any advice for content creators, and I think we covered quite a few different points there, so I won't specifically go into that one. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover, say, shout out, or we'll do shout outs in a sec, but anything else you want to cover that we haven't covered already? Mm. Anything at all, whatever you want. I think I say this often and I don't think it can be said enough. So I'll say it again, uh, which is that I am (laughs) whoever is listening. um, If you've watched my videos or um, I just want to say, thank you. I thank you seems like such an understatement and it's such an inadequate expression of what I want to convey to our community for the love that I receive daily, whether it's through comments or messages, I, do, I get really heartfelt messages and um, from our community members. And even those who may not send messages, I actually know that a lot of people who watch these uh, videos and my resources uh, are grateful and um, they have been there with me from the beginning to support me and to sort of cheer me on. And I can't express enough how much that means to me. It really is the lifeline to the work that I do. And um, what happened and what transpired in the last six months is something that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. Like there's no room in my heart to be cynical or to, uh, I mean, I'm human, so I get afraid here and there, but there has been it's the community instilled the level of confidence and empowerment and inspiration in me to really last me a lifetime. And I feel undeserving of it, but I have taken it. I have received it and I am going to do good with that. And that's something that, um, you know, I want to always live my life, giving back to the community, always remembering what this community has done for me and, um, seeing the way that it has stood by me. So this is the first time I think I've really actually talked about um, on this podcast with you, like what this has really meant for me, other than, you know, my announcement video coming back. But one of these days, maybe I'll write a book. I don't know. It's Do it, it just changed my life so much. You know, the love, it, it restored my confidence and human goodness and kindness and you know I mentioned earlier that there the online place can be such a scary world but the online space that I am in that I occupy is one of such generosity and kindness and thoughtfulness and um, I feel so blessed to be a part of it so that's that's what I wanted to say as a closing remark (laughs) 
You are an amazing example of an OT, of a content creator. I One of the things I was thinking about as you were speaking was one of the things for, I guess, advice for content creators is to always respect your audience. Uh, and then you came out with that, and I went, I don't have to say that anymore. You've just proven it. <laughs> Led by example, should I say. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. No, I really enjoyed and now I, I mean, I, I was really looking forward to this. We scheduled this months ago, right? We did. We did. Um, it's been a while. It's been a while. Well, actually, we tried to just, I think just before it all happened. And then I was like, all right, so this is, we'll, we'll take a back step now. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so it's been, it's, this has been a year in the making, essentially. So I'm glad we finally, finally got to it. It was delightful. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for, for giving up your time to, to come and have a chat. Uh, it, it's, it's been amazing, and I, just, I, I think you are just phenomenal. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, I was really nervous. My hands were sweaty. I was like, don't lift your arms because I know it's like all sweaty armpits. <laughs> But as soon as you started talking and we got into the conversation, it felt so effortless. And part of that, you're just a great host. You put other people at ease. So you make my head swell. You're made for this. <laughs>